Father, again, I thank you for these men. Thank you for godly men that you have brought here this morning. Lord, that um, the first thing that they're doing with their day is to meet with other men and talk with other men and, and listen to teaching from your word. Lord, I thank you that you designed the body so that we can benefit from the input of one another. Thank you that you designed the body so that we can be used in the lives of one another. Lord, you didn't leave us to ourselves. Uh, you gave us your word, you gave us your spirit, and you gave us one another. And I pray that all of those things would work in conjunction this morning to make our time an edifying time that's pleasing to you and that's beneficial to each one of us. So, Lord, I pray that you would help us. Lord, I pray for Ben James as he will be teaching us this morning that he would be well right now. He would be well in you, that you would bring him here in a timely way, and that you would make us ready to hear from him. And I pray for our time in our discussion groups as we sit down in circles and we talk about your word, we talk about your design for salvation, we talk about the future state that every believer will be in. I pray that you would grow each one of us in our confidence, in the certainty of that. You would grow us in how to live our lives based on what we know is coming. Lord, I pray that you would use the words of each man in these circles to encourage the rest of us. And I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. All right. If you have your Bibles, will you turn to Romans 8? A couple of chapters ahead of where we are on Sunday mornings. Don't want to run ahead of Scott. But what I want to do this morning is, is show us two things from Romans 8 that can help us appreciate Christ when we come before Him in prayer. What we're looking at here is Romans 8. We're going to look at verses 1 through 4. And we're going to be focusing on 3 and 4. And the idea here is to take something away from this passage that will help us when we're actually communicating with Christ in time of prayer during our devotional time. Our devotional time consists primarily of two things. It consists of reading the Word, and it consists of praying back to the Lord. It might also consist in scripture memorization and meditation and things like that, but primarily reading the Word and praying back. And um, sometimes it's really hard for me to come up with things that will help me grow in my affection for Christ as I get started in my time of prayer. So I drag my body before the Word, I sit down, I close my eyes, and and there's not a lot to help me get going sometimes. It's early, and I'm just kind of getting, getting my feet under me and getting going. What I have in front of us today is a passage that I have found to be very helpful for me. And uh, we're going to be looking specifically at verse 3 and two things that Christ did um, as he came to this earth that helped me grow in my affections for him. Let me read verses 1 through 4. Uh, and Paul has been building the case of what the gospel looks like and what the gospel does in the life of a believer up through chapters 4 and 5, justification is, is a big, big factor, big, big topic, and how it is that a person actually becomes justified uh, in God's eyes. It's, it's a declaration that God makes over the person. Chapter 6 talks about a new relationship that every believer has to sin, that sin is now no longer master over that, that believer. And chapter 7 talks about a new relationship that the believer has to the law. Chapter 8 starts by Paul writing, Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. For what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did, sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh 
and as an offering for sin, he contemned sin in the flesh, so that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Verse 3 tells us what the law couldn't do, God did. He condemned sin in the flesh. There's lots of other words around that that help us fill in our understanding of exactly what was taking place and what was underneath it, but verse 3 tells us God condemned sin in the flesh. So I'm sitting before the Lord, I've got my eyes closed, I've got my Bible ready to go, and I am trying to understand uh, how I can grow in my affections for Christ. Uh, Right after we talk, Paul tells us what God did, Paul tells us how God condemned sin in the flesh. He sent his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh. That's the first thing he did. God took a part of himself and sent him, dispatched him into this world in the likeness of sinful flesh. He took on the likeness of every one of us. Every one of us. Uh, This is Jesus who had this glory that we can't comprehend, that we can't take in on our own. Uh, He has this glory that is so resplendent, so white, so bright, that as as human beings, we can't even take it in. It it would just blow us away. He set that aside so that he could come to this world and take on flesh just like us. He could look just like us and be just like us so that he could be our representative at the cross. So that's the first thing that Christ did is he set aside his glory so he could take on human flesh to be our representative. He couldn't represent us if he wasn't one of us. Second thing he did here is he came down taking on the sinful flesh, the likeness of sinful flesh, as an offering for sin. There has to be a recipient of God's wrath. God is a just God, which means that he avenges every offense against him. He's an avenging God. And in his justice, he he must do that. So Jesus comes as an offering, as a recipient of God's anger, God's wrath, God's holy wrath against everybody who would put their trust in him. Verse 4, so that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. So there is a substitution that's taking place there. And the substitution is that Jesus, in our likeness, is an offering for sin. And when I read that in the morning, I am sobered, I am humbled. And that grows my awareness and my affection for Christ because of what he did for me. So I hope that's helpful to you guys. If you ever find yourself, you've got yourself before your Bible, you're, you're sitting there, you're doing good. Um, and you're thinking, okay, I've got to get going here. And I'm feeling really dry and I'm feeling really empty. It's really good, really helpful to remember exactly what Christ did as a part of the triune Godhead, setting aside his glory coming down into this earth, becoming one of us, a likeness just like us, so that he could represent us and be an offering for our sin, not his, ours. Uh, That helps me get ready for his word. That helps me understand my position before a holy God. And that helps me think rightly when I'm taking his word in and I'm reading it. Um, Apart from being informed like that, I, I can just read words. And even though I'm born again and I have the spirit within me, Those words don't have as much meaning as they do when I understand my position before the Lord. So my prayer, my desire is that's encouraging and helpful to you guys. If you ever get to the place where you're thinking, "Ah, 
I am just dry. I am cold right now, and I need a little bit of help. Uh, remember Christ and who he is, how he took on human flesh, sinful flesh, the likeness of sinful flesh, so that he could be a representative for us. Okay. All right. We are going to break off into our discussion groups. Everybody knows where their groups meet. Same place as last week. And we'll be back here by 7.50. Ben will be teaching starting at 8 o'clock. Okay. <laughs> I'm glad that was off the record. Okay, you know, 11. Nobody's going to know all those nice things you said. Yeah, if, you, if you had to go back and listen to the audio online last week, uh, you listened to a different presentation than what I talked when I was here because I forgot to press the red button. So I had to come in later in the week and talk to myself. <laughs> How'd that go? So, yeah, it went really well. Welcome for everybody being here. Thanks for coming. You're saying this to an empty room. Well, Matt has all the record. Matt is totally under control here. Well, that, that's, that's what I've been doing up until now when I've been reading my notes, like, in the mirror. So I know what that's like, just the reverse order. Um, well, good morning. It's just exciting to be here. I was looking down the list of the, the, the roster, I don't know if everybody's on the roster, but I think I saw like 15 new people, or at least people that I don't remember being in here before, and so, so that's exciting. Um, but the other side of it, there's probably at least 30 of you that have been through this before, which means you might have actually heard me say the same thing last year, or if it's been a couple years, you might have heard Scott Maxwell teach the same lesson a couple years ago. And so every one of us, even those that it's their first time, we're going to be looking at some passages today that are very familiar to you, probably. Uh, and so we all need to be aware. I, I was thinking back to last week's message from John Anderson from Hebrews 3.12. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. No matter how many times you have heard these verses, or even this message today, when God's word is proclaimed, not, maybe not the stuff that I say in between, but when we have God's word open, he is speaking. And there, we're in a danger of dismissing what we have to hear and hardening our hearts. So my, my prayer as we pray is that these familiar passages, um, that we would allow God to, to speak and to, to humble our hearts before it. Um, and so that's my prayer for you guys. I'm excited, again, for those who are returning and all the new faces. I know there's a bunch of you that I haven't even met. So if I haven't met you, I'd love to meet you afterwards because it's my only time being here this year. Um, but that with that... We're going to be looking at what the book of Proverbs has to say about the heart. And before we do, I want to talk a little bit about the book of Proverbs, because especially, you know, as a new believer, it's really sometimes difficult to understand how the book of Proverbs works. And so we want to be mindful of just how a proverb works uh, before we jump in. One author said, a proverb is a compressed statement of wisdom, artfully crafted to be striking, thought-provoking, memorable and practical, right? A, a proverb makes observations about the world and it paints memorable and evocative images in very few words about what wise living looks like. And proverbs are wonderfully successful at doing what it is they're designed to do, to be a proverb. They're not so wonderfully successful at being taken as prophecy, they're not so wonderful at being taken as an unconditional promise of God. They're a proverb. There's a, they're different than a promise of God. 
So one, one author said, and I have the quote up just because it was memorable to me, Proverbs convey pithy points, or pithy, uh, or terse, or uh, intentionally and forcefully concise. Uh, maybe it's a little rougher around the edges, but it's conveying something in a very few words. Proverbs can t- convey pithy points and principles, not precarious particular promises. So when I read something in Proverbs that doesn't seem like it explains what I see in real life, it is not as if the promises of God are dangling in this precarious position where God is, you know, if this proverb doesn't seem to be the way I see it in real life, well, God's promises are at stake, right? These are proverbs. They are, they are general um, observations um, that are meant to be um, memorized and pondered, but not always necessarily to be applied across the board in every given circumstance, what they reveal about man, what they reveal about God is unchanging. Um, but just to, to think through it, just how Proverbs work. Think about how, say, how you know, sayings that we have work. You know, a stitch in time saves nine. All these things that we have that are these short, precise, concise things that are intended to convey a principle, not to say this is a standard that will always play out throughout history. So just to have that in your mind, and one quick example to illustrate that, is I have, and you don't have to write this down or look it up, I just put it on the board. When a man's ways please the Lord, he makes even his enemies to be at peace with him. That's Proverbs 16, 7. So if we look at this verse, if we want to press these words into a promise for our here and now situations, we might run into tremendous grief, right, or even cause it. So... Does this verse demand that we assume that we must be displeasing to the Lord if, if anyone hates us? Or another way to look at it, does God's favor mean that all relationships will be warm and trouble-free? There's one problem with interpreting it this way. Right? Right? Jesus. Was there ever a man who pleased the Lord more, but was more wrongfully hated by his enemies? Right? And that's kind of illustrative of the point. The principle is evident. Our relationship with God is more important and determinative than our relationship with people. Um, So we just want to be careful and be thinking as we begin to jump into Proverbs, how Proverbs work. And um, and a reminder, when we went through the book of Ecclesiastes last year at the church, one of the things we saw as Smed was preaching that was as Solomon looked around the world, he saw that the results that he expected from wise living can often be overruled by God's sovereignty. Or they can be overturned by the sinfulness of man. Uh, they can be frustrated by man's sinfulness. We live in a broken world. So while some Proverbs that we're going to come across as we make our way through the book of Proverbs in our own reading certainly are going to contain some clear propositional truths. Uh, most proper, proverbs are better understood as, as truisms. You know, they describe general truths about the way the world works, but aren't necessarily intended to be the definitive measure for every circumstance. So that's important. Uh, we want to understand our proverbs alongside the rest of our wisdom literature. Job and Ecclesiastes are full of examples where one might say, see... The evil man doesn't get what he deserves, and the righteous man only receives injustice. See, the book of Proverbs can't be true. 
uh, we want to understand that all of the, the wisdom literature books in our Bible, right, Job, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon, they, they, we need to understand them in light of one another. So when we see things in Proverbs that don't seem to fit what we see in everyday life, books such as Job and Ecclesiastes help us to understand life in a sinful world with a sovereign God. So with that, and we'll be ready to jump in, but I want to open in prayer first. So if you bow your heads with me. Father, thank you for your wisdom that you have recorded for us in your word. Lord, your son has become true wisdom for us. And what would our wisdom be without him? It would be empty. It would be vain. Lord, our wisdom, our words would be lies. Lord, thank you for the opportunity to humble ourselves <coughs> under your word. And for those of us who, who hear familiar passages to us, help us to help our hearts to be softened by your word today and not hardened. Uh, Lord, it's in your name we pray. Amen. So as we look at what God says about the, the human heart in Proverbs, uh, you can follow along in your outline. Uh, God's wise assessment of our heart should lead the believer to ask four questions. And so that kind of the, the outline that you have in front of you. The first question, and there's a fill in the blank there for you, is do I value God's assessment of my heart more than my own assessment of my heart? Uh, and just to full disclosure, this message is going to be front-loaded to really this first page. So as you look at the time and we start... We've got two more pages or three more pages of notes. The most of our content is going to be on this first page. So just to be aware of that, and uh, if you want to write a lot down, you might have to write small on this front page. Um, but we will get through, I think, most of it. And the, the end of it will go a little bit quicker. So whose assessment of your heart do you value most? What you see about your own heart or what God says about your heart? First passage there. It's Proverbs 29, 20 verse 9. Who can say, I have cleansed my heart. I am pure from my sin. Proverbs 29 is in the form of a rhetorical question, and that assumes a very specific answer. Right? What is the implied answer? Who can say, I have cleansed my heart, I am pure from sin? No one. Nobody can. Right, this statement is coming from a wise Old Testament believer that is advising his son that no one can claim in any situation in life to have total and complete purity. To have total and complete purity of heart or motive. The heart, right, the, the inner man, always has some corruption in it due to sin. And, we, and we've looked at that. Uh, this is what was discussed in Build earlier, and we looked at that foldable diagram of man. This is the indwelling residual sin that's resident in the, in the heart of even a believer. And the Word of God reveals that your thoughts, your words, your attitudes, your deeds, your desires, all of them, each one of them is mixed. The one in Christ certainly has the ability, however, to be influenced by truth and by good desires that are pleasing to the Lord, as well as, at the same time, 
the influence of the flesh and sin. So you can't look at your thought life and say, you know, that was a completely pure motive for doing something. I can't. You can't. We may feel that we can. We've we've assessed it. But it's not something that we can do. And that might be shocking. As sinful men, men in this room, we can get really bent out of shape when someone questions our motives. Do you know that? I can tell you firsthand. Uh, in my sinful condition, when I feel like someone is questioning my motives, uh, maybe when I feel like my wife is questioning my motives, my heart is so often sinfully inclined to rush and defend the purity of my motives. In fact, I will go to great lengths to sin against the people around me in attempt to convince them of the purity of my motives. Right? That's the deception of my own heart, our hearts. And but our motives need to be questioned, right? First and foremost, by ourselves, uh, we need we need to question our motives as we enter into conversations with others. We need to be aware that our that our thoughts, our motives, our hearts, our inner men, are not pure. We are not pure, right? We're mixed, uh, and that's not to say that we can't think right thoughts. You can, you can have right thoughts. We can read the Word, and we can think God's thoughts after Him. But in terms of what we say, and what we choose, and how we're motivated, we have to be very careful about what we say, and how we assess our own hearts. So let me give you an example, if you can, and this verse is not on your page, but turn over to the New Testament, 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 4. Paul says it this way, For I am conscious of nothing against myself. In other words, he had examined himself and wasn't aware of of anything impure. We'll say that. But notice what he says. Yet, I am not by this acquitted. And what what is it that he's admitting? I can't see impurity, but that doesn't mean that I'm guiltless. I'm not qualified to be my own judge. Verse 4 continues, But the one who examines me is the Lord. Therefore, do not go on passing judgment before the time, but wait until the Lord comes, who will bring both to light the things hidden in the darkness and disclose the motives of men's hearts. There's things going on, Paul says, in the motives, in the heart, that we're trying to get to the bottom of. Paul's trying to get to the bottom of. And he's just not able to. And there will be times when you will say, you know, I just can't see any sin that would be in this motive or in this decision or in this pursuit. But that doesn't mean that you're acquitted just because you can't see it. So let's go to James 1 by reminder. You might want to write some of these passages down. We're going to go to a few passages in James. By way of reminder, some examples of how we should be thinking, and we want to let Scripture help us think rightly in regards to this. James 1.26 says, If anyone thinks himself to be religious, and yet does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his own heart, this man's religion is worthless. James says it is possible 
to be deceived at the heart level. Right? That's, that's a mixed condition. Nobody in heaven is being deceived by their heart. But we can be. Um, but also, notice the connection that James sees right here and paints right here between the heart and a man's speech. An unbridled tongue is evidence of a deceived heart. Um, look at James 2.4. Have you not made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil motives? Right? It, it's possible to have evil motives as a believer. Um, to further demonstrate this, Turn ahead to James 3.9. How do we know that James includes believers in this? While discussing the tongue, James says, With it we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse men who have been made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come both blessing and cursing. (coughs) Blessing and cursing coming out of the same mouth, what's that? Right? This is the mixed mouth, right? My brethren, these things ought not to be this way. Notice something very interesting in this passage. That James includes himself when he says, we curse men. Notice how he addressed his readers. My brethren, or my brothers. He's not talking to the world. He's talking to believing Jews who have been scattered and saying it is possible for believers' mouths to speak good things and to speak bad things. It's possible for believers to have a mixed mouth. Where does a mixed mouth come from? Remember James 1.26 reveals that the unbridled tongue was evidence of a deceived heart. One of the implications of that passage. Uh, The familiar passage, Luke 6.45, says the mouth speaks out of that which fills the heart. So a mixed mouth for a believer flows out of a mixed heart. It's not a mouth problem. It's a heart problem. Evil can reside in the heart of a believer. If you have a difficult time controlling your speech when speaking with someone, maybe with your wife, maybe with your children, your roommate, your parents, um... The solution isn't simply, I I need to really rein in my words. Um, Yes, you you need need to rein your words. You need to bridle them. But the heart needs to be addressed. The man who has bridled his tongue has actually bridled his heart. He's controlled his heart. How is your speech? And what what is your speech revealing about your heart? So do you value... God's assessment of your heart more than your own assessment. Um, Listen, we are in an infinitely better condition now than when we were ever were before, right? Right? There was nothing in the heart that was pure ever before. There was no motive that was ever honoring to Jesus Christ before God saved us. Even, Even the good that we might do Right, we might have done in feeding our children as unbelievers. It was a Jesus-less motive. And even though it was good, it didn't bring glory to Christ because Jesus wasn't at the center of it. 
But right, that's what you that's what we used to be. But but now, isn't it better? So much better. There is a possibility of good things and good motives. But what we see in Proverbs 20 verse 9 is that to be able to claim now that this heart of mine is completely empty of any impurity is a dangerous one and it doesn't properly understand what it means to live in a mixed condition with residual sin. Um, so, so what do we do in response to this? Well, each one of us needs to hold an appropriate suspicion over our hearts. Right? An appropriate suspicion. You know, we, we can hold an inappropriate suspicion. Uh, we tend to gravitate in life towards one or two extremes in this area. Um, some people are going to gravitate towards never, ever finding any fault and at any point in time in their motives. Other people are going, to str- are going to find that they never find any good at any moment in any place in our lives and our hearts. There's never anything good. I am with Paul. I agree with him. Worm that I am. All right, so the man who is at assessing his own heart and he's convinced that there's nothing I can ever do that's good. Well, that man should be encouraged. Uh, Romans 15.4. You can write that down. And concerning you, my brethren, I myself am convinced that you yourself are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge, and able also to admonish one another. Right? You've been filled in Christ with goodness that makes you able to care for other people in the body. This is not about self-esteem. This is recognizing that God has put within a clay vessel, a sinful vessel, something good. And you have something to contribute to people around you in the body of Christ. Avoid the extreme of thinking there is never, ever any good in anything I've ever thought or done. But the other, the, the other extreme, which we mentioned, is somebody that's prone to say, my motives are pure. Right? Don't question my motives. Who are you to question my motives? They themselves don't even question their own motives. And that person is trusting in their own assessment of their heart. And watch out for this. Watch out for it, especially in your own hearts. Watch out for it when you're talking with your wife, your children, your roommates, your parents. When you're ready to jump, to defend yourself, to defend your actions, your motives. (coughs) We need to be influenced by the truth of God's Word to navigate between these two poles. It is wise to say, like Paul, as far as I can tell, you know, I can't see what the impurity of my motive is. That doesn't mean that I don't have it. And in fact, let's open Scripture together to help me see what I might not see on my own. God's assessment alone is the one to value. Uh, if we move down to the next verse, there in your outline... Every man's way is right in his own eyes. But Yahweh weighs the hearts. Proverbs 21.2 You know how this feels, right? 
the first part of that verse, how every man's way is right in his own eyes. That sounds autobiographical. That's all about me. I know this by experience. Nobody needs to teach me that what the way I look at my life, I, I, I'm right in my own eyes. Things I've done, I'm convinced sometimes that, you know what, this is flawless. My, my thinking is flawless. I've taken time. I've assessed my decision. I'm good with this. Sometimes it seems just absolutely impossible that the path that you've chosen is not the right path. You know, we are far too easily impressed with our ability to choose the right path to walk or to make the right choice or take the appropriate action. Um, notice in this verse what it, what it is that the author says our eyes are looking at. Beginning of the verse. What are our eyes looking at? They're looking at the man's way or his path. Our eyes are looking at the results of our actions. They're looking at our, they're looking at our path, the direction we're traveling down. His choices, his actions, our eyes look at what we're doing, how we're going along, but what is Yahweh weighing? Our hearts. Right? The inner you, the inner me. God is looking at the inner man throughout our decision-making process, and His sight is far more trustworthy. It's easy for us to become unacquainted with our hearts throughout the day, and we forget all of the evil machinations that may be occurring within our hearts at any moment. But God is always weighing the heart, and we need to value His assessment, because I am only ever going to acquit myself, and so will you. The next verse for you there is Proverbs 28. 26. He who trusts in his own heart is a fool, but he who walks wisely will be delivered. I'll give you some time to turn there. He who trusts in his own heart is a fool, but he who walks wisely will be delivered. So, so trusting in your own heart is contrasted with what in this verse? Take a look at it. Trusting in your own heart is contrasted with walking wisely. And look at the results. Take a look at this passage and ask yourself, what does this proverb imply about the outcome for you if you do trust in your own heart? Right? The one who trusts his own heart is a fool. In contrast, the one who does not trust in his own heart is the one who walks wisely, and that one is going to be delivered. So what is the implication of the one and the outcome that's expected if you do trust in your own heart? It's the opposite of the one who walks wisely being delivered. What's the opposite of being delivered? He who trusts in his own heart will not be delivered. Alright, that's easy. He will be left to endure whatever coming obstacles, judgment is prepared for him. He is actually trapped and in need of deliverance. Trusting your own heart can actually lead to entrapment and placing yourself in a, in a situation where 
you need to be delivered. Our hearts are capable of good. We've said that. But they're also capable of deception. Trusting in those hearts will lead to being trapped. We'll place ourselves in a need of rescue from a circumstance which in this verse was created by our own foolishness. So a question, and this is really a caution from what we said at the beginning. Do the results always reveal the heart condition? So let me ask it another way. Does walking wisely always guarantee deliverance? No. Right? We need to be careful that we don't take a passage like this and think, you know, I experienced good results. God's appeared to bless my decision. My heart must have been pure in that. Hey, I did this and I got a promotion at work. I got we got an offer that was thirty five thousand above asking price in our house. Man, this must have been the right decision. I must this God's blessed this. My my heart must have been pure in this motive. Remember, Proverbs is written in a way that is generally true. They don't describe the way things are exactly every single time during the course of our lives without exception. But it is generally true. Think of another proverb. If you humble yourself, God will lift you up. But can you think of a time when there was somebody who was humbled in Scripture that didn't get lifted up for a very long time? Think of Job. His deliverance certainly was not immediate. So we don't want to simply look to the results to evaluate or to justify trusting in our own hearts. Right? That's, that's the man whose eyes are on his, 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 his way, the results, his actions, but he's not looking at his own heart. And the results are insufficient guides to assess what's going on in the heart. That's foolish, Proverbs 28, 26 says. The next verse that you have in front of you is a verse, if you're like me, many of us might have memorized this growing up in Awana or something similar. Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. Trust in Yahweh with all your heart. And do not lean on your understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge Him, and He will make your path straight. So here is just a clear, positive command concerning your inner man as a believer. What what is the command? Gather up all that you are inwardly, your whole heart, all of your heart, before God and trust in Yahweh. And there's also a clear negative command here concerning your inner man as a believer. Do not lean or trust in your own understanding. Why? Why are these commands given? Why are these warnings given? Right, The, the prior verses we've been looking at that warn of the destruction and the error in trusting your own heart. Um, listen, as you move outward from yourself to the path that you have chosen from your heart 
you still need to acknowledge God as you walk along those paths. And Solomon is intending to make it clear that for the Old Testament believer, there should always be a looking away from yourself to God at the heart level. And it is generally true that the one who is doing this, God will make your path straight. Now, so this is a verse many of us learned as as children. Um, You might have learned or memorized this verse um, in in a version like I did as a child. And some of you might have a translation that reads like this. Trust in the Lord with all your heart, and He shall direct thy paths. Because I skipped a little bit in there. but And He shall direct thy paths. Um, the verb that's used here is best translated, make straight. And that's the way it appears in your sheets in the New American Standard. Um, and that might be just difficult to kind of change your thinking on this verse, because you might have memorized it as, He shall direct thy paths. The idea of this passage is not so much, hey, trust God, and He's going to lead you down the right paths, or direct you to the right paths. This isn't talking about a divine leading to get you on the right path. This is, this is how we make decisions. Hey, I've been trusting God, and what enters into my heart, that's going to be what God wants me to do. I remember, if the what... Remember we've said about the heart and trusting your own heart. This isn't a recommendation that if you're trusting God, you can now trust your own, your own heart so that God's going to direct you to the right path. That's not the, the point of this passage. If I just trust God, I'm going to know what to do in every situation because God will direct me. He'll even help me choose the right path. The idea here is not about choosing the right path. And certainly there are passages that talk about that. In this verse, if you look at it, you're already going down a path. You already have a way or a direction or a path that you're going. And on this path, there are potentially obstacles. Probably some you can see. Probably others that you can't see. And while you're traveling this potentially dangerous way or path, this command comes. Trust Yahweh with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. So then what does Yahweh do? Yahweh smooths the path of the wise man who acknowledges and trusts him with each and every step. He makes the path straight. That path that you were already on that has potentially dangerous obstacles, that's why it's not about choosing the right path, God is going to actually make it straight. He removes obstacles from the path that might have otherwise hindered him if he had trusted in himself as he traveled that path. Remember what we said earlier about how trusting in your own heart can lead to entrapment. The opposite of deliverance. A similar idea is here. As you go down your chosen path, if you are doing it, trusting in your own heart, you're going to find traps and obstacles as you go down this path. But Yahweh is going to remove some of those obstacles and traps. He's going to smooth the path if you're trusting in Him instead of your own heart. Sure, there will still be obstacles in life. We live in a fallen world, and there will be obstacles as a result of God's sovereignty, as a result of man's sinfulness. But it won't be those obstacles that exist simply because you trusted in your own heart. 
when we trust in our own heart, we're going to run into all sorts of obstacles and traps as a result of our, of our trust in ourselves. So be very careful of your own assessment of your heart. If you trust in your own assessment of your heart, something's gone wrong. You need to trust God's assessment of your heart. And what is it that He's given us to do that? How about Hebrews 4.12? We've gone over it, sure you've gone over it before in, in Bill. You don't have to turn there. I'll read it for you. How can you ever judge the thoughts and intentions of your heart? How can you assess them rightly? You can't. But what has God given to us? The Word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword and piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit of both joints and marrow and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. You want to assess your own heart, lay it before God's Word, which is able to decipher the thoughts and intentions that may be blind to you. It's important to measure your own heart but not so that you would trust in it. Hey, I have assessed it. It appears to be pure. Now I can trust in it. No. It's so that you would look away from it and trust Yahweh and acknowledge Him in all your ways. By the way, if the heart was always pure, why would you need God's Word to discern its thoughts and intentions? If this is what happens in the life of a believer when they're given a new heart, it's now pure. You don't need God's Word to help discern it but that's why we need God's word to help discern our thoughts and intentions because our hearts are impure so that should, we should be at the, probably the bottom of that first page Matt now the second question that, we sh- that God's wise assessment of our own heart should lead us to be asking is am I more inclined to carefully control or blindly follow my heart we have three Proverbs for you. Proverbs 6.25, 7.25, and 23.17. And we'll look at all of these together. So notice these three commands. I want to just read them off your paper because I'll go through them pretty quickly. Do not desire her beauty in your heart, nor let her capture you with her eyelids. <coughs> Do not let your heart turn aside to her ways. Do not stray into her paths. Do not let your heart envy sinners, but live in the fear of Yahweh always. Solomon's clear expectation is that for his son, that his son would be able to control his inner man. That he would be able to control his own heart. Control yourself in what sense? Don't desire her beauty in your heart. That's on you, son. Don't do it. Don't let your heart turn aside to her ways. Don't look over there. Control your heart. And what is your heart, the result of your heart looking that direction? Your eyes. Your, your, everything follows the heart. And don't let your heart envy sinners. So, so what do these verses imply about the believer's heart? Well, by implication, the believer's heart is wayward. And it needs to be carefully watched over. It's prone to wander. It's prone to look away. It's prone to go another path. But guess what? It is your job to control it. You're you're responsible when it's out of control. 
and you're accountable to keep it under control. You're not to trust it. You're not to follow it. And this is the reason for the command in Proverbs 4.23. Watch over your heart with all diligence. We must be diligently watching over our hearts because they're wayward. They're prone to go in a direction that we they shouldn't. <coughs> so they need to be controlled and watched over. If I can have you write down one more verse, probably should add this to the handout for next year. Uh, Proverbs 23.19 Listen, my son, and be wise, and direct your heart in the way. There's Old Testament wisdom for your heart. Watch over your heart. Shepherd your heart. Direct it. Control your heart. If you blindly follow the commands that come out of your heart, you you might do some good things. But you might lead yourself astray as well and experience some significant consequences. You must control your heart, not let it control you. And that means, as Proverbs 23.19 states, it needs to be directed. It doesn't naturally go down the right path. It needs directing. It needs controlling. And so I question, are you more inclined to carefully control your heart or blindly follow your heart wherever it would lead you? Remember Proverbs 28.26, which we already looked at. He who trusts in his own heart is a fool. Well, here's another passage that's not on your handout. Proverbs 25, 28. Like a city that is broken into without walls is a man who has no control over his spirit. Just as a city without walls is extremely vulnerable to being broken into and besieged, so are you vulnerable to temptation when you have no control over your inner man. What was that reference? Uh, that is Proverbs twenty-five twenty-eight. So, we talk. Speaking of the heart's vulnerability, we'll go ahead to the third question on your outlines. Do I know in what ways my heart is vulnerable? To be to be effective in watching over our hearts, we need to be aware of how our hearts are vulnerable. Be aware of its weaknesses. And so here are two Proverbs that show how the heart can be weakened, be brought down, and made sick. So Proverbs 12, 25, on your, on your handouts. Anxiety in a man's heart weighs it down. But a good word makes it glad. Do you know how your heart is vulnerable? And do you know what impact the sin of anxiety or worry has on your heart? It's weighed down. Like it sinks like a stone under the weight of that sin. Uh, One commentator said, it can sink to the depths of despair where it can no longer apprehend gospel comforts, where it can no longer offer thanks to God. That is the result of anxiety and worry. And has your heart ever felt like this? 
Have you ever been anxious for something and you felt weighed down by it and the, the comforts of the gospel, the comforts of God's word seem to no longer have their intended effect? You're finding it very difficult in that circumstance to be thankful to God. And let's talk a little bit about anxiety for a second. What is anxiety? Not trusting God. That's a great, pithy, short, concise definition, right? Not trusting God. And, and why is it a sin? When we are anxious, I just said we're not trusting God, we're actually trusting more in ourselves than in the Lord. Let me say that again. When we are anxious, we are trusting more in ourselves than the Lord. And what do I mean by that? Well, let's look at our passage that we're here. Proverbs 12, 25. But let's start from the end first. A good word makes the heart glad. I think a good word is necessarily, to qualify as a good word, something that's truthful. When we remind ourselves about truth, the gospel, what is true about God, His wisdom, His power, His knowledge, when we remind ourselves that you know, this situation is not outside of God's control. It's not unknown to God. And there's no reason to have anxiety over a situation. But, often we find ourselves in a difficult situation. We start to become anxious. And when we do that, we are actually doubting God's goodness. We are doubting His wisdom. We're doubting His care. We're doubting His sovereignty. We are actually responding in unbelief toward His promise to cause all things to work out for our good. So instead of trusting in God, in His character, His Word, instead we become convinced that it's up to us to find a way out of this situation. Right? In some situations, I mean, we don't are really difficult. Right? And, and we might be in that situation and we very quickly realize that we are in way over our head. We've got to do something. And while we're attempting to seize control over a situation, it's very easy for us to become very quickly aware that we have a very limited means or capacity in ourselves to actually endure that situation. We're trying to control it, we're trying to find a way out of it, but we, we don't know which way to go. We don't, we don't have the means to get out of this situation, and that can lead us to despair. That's where anxiety, this, this trusting in ourselves, has led to despair, because although we're trusting in ourselves, we found that the object that we placed our, our trust in, ourselves, our own hearts, is inadequate. And that leads to despair. So how is your heart vulnerable when your heart is not being bolstered by the truth of who God is and what He has revealed in His Word? Your heart is vulnerable. Uh, when you're in a difficult situation that tests your limits... Your heart's going to be vulnerable. Right? Anxiety is a heart shepherding moment. Can I trust the Lord in the midst of the situation? We sin 
because we are leaning on our own understanding. We're not acknowledging Him in all our ways. We're certainly not acknowledging His sovereignty. We're certainly not acknowledging His goodness. When we're anxious, we are actually contending with God for sovereignty over our lives. We tend to think of anxiety as a personality trait rather than a sin of the heart. Men, anxiety is not the opposite of optimism. But rather, it's a symptom of pride, of discontentment, and a lack of, tr- of trust in who God is and what He has said. It is a sign of resident unbelief in the heart of a believer. But what's the good news? What's the good news in this passage? Look how easily encouraged the anxious heart can be. Your heart may be sinking to the depths where the gospel just seems unbelievable. Your hope seems to have vanished. But then notice how the verse ends. Anxiety is in a man's heart weighs, weighs it down, but a good word makes it glad. Whether that good word is God's word, or an encouraging word from a friend that is grounded in truth, our hearts can be encouraged from truth. There's hope. The heart can find hope in a good word. Don't underestimate the effectiveness of truth and encouragement from God's word from within the body of Christ in helping a wayward heart turn away from sinful anxiety. What is the solution to a heart that is not trusting in God? They need God's Word to bring truth to the situation. Another way our hearts can be vulnerable is deferred hope. The next passage on your list is Proverbs thirteen twelve. Hope deferred makes the heart sick, but desire fulfilled is a tree of life. The word for hope here is translated in two main ways in the Old Testament. It is translated as hope. It's translated as expectation. And this is very consistent with the way the word hope is used in the New Testament. Hope is not something that you're wishing for. I hope to win the lottery. Right? Instead, it's something that you fully expect. That you have assurance of and confidence that will come to pass. Right? It's an indication that you have placed your trust fully in a future reality. So for the believer, our hope, our expectation, our trust is in the Lord. There's no uncertainty about it. And that's why for the believer, biblical hope is always something that is only ever an encouragement for the believer. It further encourages confidence in the future. But our hearts are very inclined to actually place our hope in the wrong place. And that's what's in view in this passage. Proverbs 13.12 pictures a hope that is placed in something other than the Lord. And this is like a carrot on a stick. You're hoping for something. Right, there's, there's a carrot dangling in front of us. You take some steps towards it, and it just seems to be kept being pulled out of your reach. You never get there. 
Right? That is a hope deferred. As soon as I take one more step, I'm going to be there. And when I get there, it's not there. Maybe it's going to happen later. Maybe not. So what impact does deferred hope have on your heart? Well, when you've put confidence in something that fails to deliver, hope deferred makes the heart sick. It's, it's disheartening. And we need to be careful about people and what pursuits we put our hope in. If they fall through, our hearts are going to be affected. Do you think there's going to be no spiritual impact to you if you have placed your hope in something other than the Lord? There will be. And, and they're really vul- we're really vulnerable to placing our hope in something other than the Lord. Our hearts are prone to sickness and distress when our hopes are frustrated. And so we need to be watchful over our hearts and aware of this vulnerability. As, as dads, those of you in the room, we need to be careful with our children's hearts too. Have you ever said, yeah, yeah, you know, we're going to do that tomorrow. But then you forget about it the moment it comes out of your mouth. But you know what? Your children have not moved on. And they will remind you. And when you made that... Because when you made that promise... They didn't have any expectation that you wouldn't follow through. They set their hope, probably foolishly, on what their dad said. And this is not going to have a positive impact upon their hearts. Yeah, they shouldn't have put their hope in my words, in your words. Yet we need to be careful that what we're saying we're going to do. And a parent can have that impact upon their children's hearts without even thinking about it. Where, When we put our hope in the wrong things, we are destined for disappointment when those things don't happen. And so notice the opposite in this verse. Go back to the passage. Desire fulfilled is like a tree of life. Just like our hearts can be devastated when we put our hope when what we, where we put our hope is not fulfilled, when our hope has been placed in the right place, in the Lord, those desires will actually be realized. It will be a tree of life to our souls. Right? There's the imagery of a garden here, a tree that is giving life. We could spend more time looking at this passage, but we, want to, we do want to finish. Um, we looked at two Proverbs that reveal ways in which our heart is vulnerable. Anxiety and deferred hope or or placing our hope in something other than the Lord. And so do you know the ways in which your own inner man, your own heart, is vulnerable before God? The last question, number four, is when I am in trouble, do I ever back up and consider my heart? Proverbs 18.12 says, Before destruction... The heart of man is haughty, right, or prideful, or arrogant. But humility goes before honor. Uh, let's, let's remember what we said earlier. These are generalizations that are true, that are generally true in life. But they're not necessarily going to hold out in every single situation, every time. Right, that's the way Proverbs work. 
So if you come upon destruction, right, a life that is undone spiritually, uh, or perhaps a ministry that is undone spiritually, a relationship that is unraveling, the presence of that kind of destruction is an opportunity to stop and evaluate the influence that pride possibly had. Possibly had in bringing that destruction. Why? Because before destruction, the heart of man is prideful. Uh, George Lawson said, Proud men are always standing on the edge of a fearful precipice from whence they will soon tumble into destruction. Uh, we'll come back and we'll touch, bring these three together, but let's go ahead to the next verse. It's similar. Proverbs twenty-eight fourteen. How blessed is a man who fears always. He who hardens his heart will fall into calamity. Uh, the presence of calamity is another opportunity for us to value, evaluate the hardness or the softness of our heart. You know, what was the condition of my heart prior to this calamity? We want to remember that just because you are in the midst of destruction, a relationship that's in trouble, it may not automatically mean that arrogance or hardness of heart was there. All right, again, what's the example in Scripture of a man who was not in sin, but his life was one big calamity? Right? Talk about Job. And the writer of Job is actually careful to tell us that Job did not sin. His heart seemed to be soft. Um, but the heart can also be hardened. The, the presence of calamity is an opportunity for us to evaluate the hardness of heart that might have possibly brought about this situation. So notice what this is contrasted with. And what it is contrasted with is he who hardens his heart will fall into calamity is contrasted with fearing always. And what does this mean in the context of Proverbs? Fearing always refers to what? The fear of Yahweh. Fear of the Lord, the one who is walking in wisdom. The existence of trouble and calamity and spiritual unraveling is an opportunity to back up and an opportunity to evaluate the condition the heart was in prior to the trouble. And so let's think, okay, so let's think pastorally, let's think discipleship relationships, let's think about Christian friendship, relationships within our small groups, our build discussion groups. Suppose you come upon a believer's, believing friend's life, and he or she appears devastated for some reason. What should you do? What will you do? Number one, first, we want to enter into that distress. And we want to care. Right? We want to cry. We want to sympathize with them as one who understands how commonplace trouble is. We want to help them understand that they're not alone. They're living in a broken world in a mixed body full of rebellion and good. And you understand that. And we want to weep with those who are weeping. And that's actually what Job's friends did initially. Where they sat there and said nothing. And their heart was broken for what their friend was going through. They, they started out well. And secondly, think carefully 
because the existence of calamity might mean that the heart of this believer prior to the calamity was foolish. But it doesn't automatically mean they're being disciplined by God. And Job is the example. Nevertheless, as a good brother, we want to jump gently and and help our brother back up and help them to evaluate. Help them to evaluate their thinking. Help them to evaluate their inner man prior to the calamity, which they need God's word to do. Because before destruction, the heart of man is prideful. He who hardens his heart will fall into calamity. And so it is often the case that prior to the trouble, that we are often going to be in calamity, in heartache, in destruction, in turmoil because of pride and hardness of our heart. But it doesn't mean that that is always the cause. But because it is often a result, when we find ourselves in the midst of that sort of calamity, we need to step back and evaluate. Where was my heart prior to this? it might be a good indicator of something that we need to assess. Um, But what is going to be devastating to a person who is in calamity not because of arrogance and not because of the hardness of heart is if you come in right away and you make an accusation and you you can really miss the mark. You might actually be admonishing someone who really needs help and encouragement. That's what Job's friends did. They assumed they knew the result why he was in the calamity. It was clearly his sin. It can be, but it might not be. But for that reason, when we find it, because God can use that to point out our flawed thinking, to point out the pridefulness and arrogance, arrogance and hardness of our hearts, we should stop back. And when we find ourselves in the situation, stop back and assess where was our heart prior to this. So, what we've been looking at today are four questions for us to ask ourselves on a regular basis about our heart from the book of Proverbs. Do I value God's assessment of my heart more than the own, my own assessment of my heart? Am I more inclined to carefully control my heart or blindly follow my heart? Do I know the ways that my heart is vulnerable? And when trouble comes... Will I heed God's wisdom? Will I back up and measure the condition of my heart? Let's let's pray. Thank you, Father, for the opportunity to look at our hearts from the book of Proverbs. Um, I pray that you would help give us the proper balance that truth will bring to our lives. I I pray that your word would keep us from extremes. Um, That there might be men who are suspicious of their own hearts in ways that are not pleasing to you by not acknowledging the good that you bring about in us but I also pray that you'd keep us from a, from a lack of suspicion where we are convinced that there is nothing wrong with our motives and our hearts help us to be properly weighed by your truth Lord, help us not to trust in our own hearts and lean on our own understanding But Lord, help us that we would be marked by the trait of always looking away from ourselves toward you, to trust in you and not in our own hearts. Uh, Lord, I pray for even in our relationships uh, with our our families, our roommates, our parents, our spouses, our children, Lord, that we would help keep these truths in mind when we feel that our own motives are being questioned. Lord, that we would not be quick to rush to defend ourselves, but we recognize that, you know what? 
I do need to look at my own motives. Um, Lord, what kind of an impact would it make upon my wife and my children if these were the kinds of men that we were in our homes today? Where we live in a world where we are told to trust in our own hearts, to follow our desires. Um, Lord, that is contrary to what your word has said. Lord, I pray today that as we go out from here that we would be men and that you would help us to turn away from ourselves and to trust wholly in you with our hearts and our minds and that we would look to your word as the only measure, the only qualified judge to help us see and evaluate our own hearts. In your name we pray. Amen.